we are going to begin a new series in Lent, and we're going to be talking about worship. And um, we're joining Jesus on his road to Jerusalem. And worship is what makes our lives cruciform. What do I mean by that term? Cross-shaped. Jesus did not just go to the cross to save humanity. He went to the cross to glorify his Father. Right? The sacrifice of Christ was an act of worship. It wasn't one that God demanded as though God would need human sacrifices to make him happy. Even in the Old Testament, God condemned child sacrifices as demonic and pagan. But the sacrifice of Christ did worship God the Father. Why? Because Jesus was willing to demonstrate just how far the love of the Father was willing to go. This is the kind of sacrifice we participate in. Whenever love lays its life down, we become a fragrant offering to God. So, where do we go from here? For 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and, though, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? So that's where we're coming from in this series. So in this series, we're going to look at famous worship psalms. They frame Jesus' life of worship. We're going to examine these songs because they're not only prophesy of his death and resurrection, they also were songs that gave meaning to his life of worship. We want to worship God just like Jesus did. We want to live in spirit and in truth. So today, we're going to read from Psalm 91. If you have your Bible, maybe your, your personal device, and you have the Bible on there, I'm going to read Psalm 91 from the Passion Translation. When you sit enthroned under the shadow of Shaddai, you are hidden in the strength of God's Most High. He's the hope that holds me and the stronghold to shelter me, the only God for me and my great confidence. He will rescue you from every hidden trap of the enemy, and he will protect you from false accusation and deadly curse, and any deadly curse. His massive arms are wrapped around you, protecting you. You can run under his covering of majesty and hide. His arms of faithfulness are a shield, keeping you from harm. You will never worry about an attack of demonic forces at night, nor have to fear a spirit of darkness coming against you. Don't fear a thing! I, my version has an exclamation mark right there, so I had to yell. <laughs> Whether by night or by day, demonic danger will not trouble you. 
nor will the powers of evil launched against you. Even in time of disaster, with thousands and thousands being killed, you will remain unscathed and unharmed. You will be a spectator as the wicked perish in judgment, for they will be paid back for what they have done. I saved you on my yelling because there was an exclamation mark right there. When we live our lives within the shadow of God Most High, our secret hiding place, we will always be shielded from harm. How then could evil prevail against us or disease infect us? God sends angels with special orders to protect you wherever you go, defending you from all harm. If you walk into a trap, they will be there for you and keep you from stumbling. You'll even walk unharmed among the fiercest powers of darkness, trampling every one of them beneath your feet. For here is what the Lord has spoken to me. Because you have delighted in me as my great lover, I will greatly protect you. I will set you in a high place, safe and secure before my face. I will answer your cry for help every time you pray, and you will find and feel my presence, even in your time of pressure and trouble. I will be your glorious hero and give you a feast. You will be satisfied with a life, with a full life, and with all that I do for you, for you will enjoy the fullness of my salvation. Wow, what a psalm. What does that have to do with Lent? Well, our scripture passage in the Gospels is the temptation of Jesus. And one of the temptations that the devil uses on Jesus comes from this psalm. You didn't know that, did you? Uh, yeah, I surprised you. Yeah, there we go. But like Psalm 23, this is one of the most famous worship songs in Scripture. It defines blessing and safety, and it comes in God's presence. Psalm 91 is devoted to helping us see what the fullness of God's salvation looks like. But Psalm 91 also has a new context in the life of Jesus. In fact, it was this famous worship song that the accuser quoted to tempt Jesus. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Interesting. The enemy uses the scriptures on Jesus. One thing I think we need to realize is that the enemy of our soul, Satan has his own way of reading the Bible. And we do not read the Bible like Satan does. You see, Jesus is tempted to use God's divine protection as a stunt to gain more influence. The temptation is framed so that should Jesus jump and God rescue him, the accuser still wins. Why? Doesn't God want to demonstrate his miraculous power? Didn't Jesus do other such miracles of protection and provision to invite people to follow his lordship? 
it is really a satanic way of reducing the person of God into an operating sense of principles that we can utilize to make a better life for ourselves. Hear me again. It is really satanic to reduce the person of God into an operating sense of principles that can utilize to make a better life for ourselves. That's ultimately what what the enemy was doing in the wilderness. You know, we can say, well, how have I ever said, said that? Well, we can kind of think these things. I don't want to know him, but I do want him to help me. Even Christians can make God into a prop in their own performance. Do you follow God because you hope he will help you to do what you want? Or have you surrendered your life's purpose to him? What if you worship and there's still no breakthrough? Do you still want to worship? What if you worship and you do not sense God's presence around you? Do you still worship? This is why it's demonic to say, I don't like to worship because I don't get anything out of it. Why? It's only worship because you aren't supposed to get anything out of it. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus refutes Satan by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is not just claiming to be God here. He's not just quoting a verse that means, don't don't you dare tempt me, you devil. Instead, Jesus is saying, I will not test God. What does that mean? Deep within Jesus is this conviction. I will not utilize my relationship with God for my own personal gain. I don't know about you, but there is still the temptation today to do that. Please smile at me when I'm preaching. It makes makes things a little bit easier. I'm just joking. But sometimes we have to realize is that we, we walk this line in worship is not for our own benefit. It's for him. We worship him because of who he is, of what he has done, not what he's doing for us. Number two is that Jesus does not trust God to keep him from death. Jesus trusts God will raise him up in defeat of death. There is a way Jesus couldn't, could have sang Psalm 91 that would have led him away from Jerusalem. He could have sang this worship song with one wrong assumption. God does not want me to experience pain or loss above anything else. Isn't that, isn't that how you could read the Psalm 91? 
That makes sense, doesn't it? The psalmist says, even though 10,000 people die, you won't even stub your toe. Doesn't that sound like God wants to help you avoid pain at all costs? And this is where essentially a lot of Christians lose their faith, at least in practice. They prefer happiness to Christ-likeness. They think God's highest purpose for their lives is their own self-gratification. They make choices to avoid pain and tell themselves they are following their calling. They lose their faith when trials come because bad circumstances override belief in God's goodness. And they sanctify their own selfishness requiring that they must themselves be blessed before they can be a blessing. In Gethsemane, Jesus is making God into his secret place. Jesus is overshadowed by the presence of God, and yet there is a sacrifice yet ahead of him. Did Jesus think Psalm 91 was false on his way to the cross? No. But he knew that if he entrusted even his own very life unto God, God would raise him up. This sort of testimony is all throughout the Bible. Here's one example. Back in Daniel, there were three dudes who said that they wouldn't bow before an idol. And what did the king say? Well, if you're not going to bow, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. Let me read Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Think about what they're saying. God is going to rescue us. And even if he doesn't, we are still submitted to him. That is the kind of courage you can only cultivate in worship. Think about the grand, majestic things we sing about God. Do we wait until we feel like they are true before we can sing them? Or do we only experience their reality once we declare them by faith? If you don't entrust yourself to God's process of death and resurrection, you'll bail when they start turning up the heat in the furnace. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
The other disciples did not abandon Jesus in Gethsemane because they were heartless thugs. They abandoned Jesus because they did not practice awareness and connection under the shadow of the Most High. And without prayer, Jesus probably would have landed of Gethsemane too. Sometimes the dream dies. Sometimes your best efforts fail. Sometimes you face sickness. Sometimes you have to process death. And God does not will these things. He allows us to walk through some of them, and He invites us to trust that resurrection power is waiting on the other side. Man, those are good times to say amen. We sometimes think that this is an avoidance method of, of living life, that, we are, that God is just here to help us get pain relief. But actuality is he's designed to build character in and through each and every one of our lives as we walk out our salvation. Our salvation is something that we, we appropriate, we believe in, we have confessed it, but it is something that we entirely have to walk out. Paul tells us that. He says to walk out your, your salvation in fear and trembling, with reverence, understanding that you have a great salvation, but it is something that needs to be fully walked out each and every day of our lives. And sometimes it's understanding what we have come out of that allows us to understand the great salvation of which we have. Amen. Thirdly, our, our sense of trust and confidence in God grows as we delighted Him. Because you have delighted in me as my great lover, Psalm 91 says, I will greatly protect you. I will set you on a high place, safe and secure before my face. I will answer your cry for help every time you pray. And you will find and feel my presence even in your time of pressure and trouble. A life of worship teaches us how to delight ourselves in God right in the middle of pressure and trouble. How do I know that? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One part of that says, He prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. And that only matters if you're willing to stop and eat. Can you imagine how hard it must be or how much discipline you need to stop on the middle of a battlefield and have a nice snack? I really need to get a better sleep. I, I need to slow down and work less. I, I need to be less anxious. I need to care about what they're saying about me behind my back. I really wish what the boss said wasn't affecting me so much. I really wish I could enjoy life more. Maybe I'll be on the other side of, maybe I will on the other side of my next vacation. A life of worship cultivates the counterintuitive discipline to rejoice under the shadow of God's presence before anything changes. 
I need to say that again because we all need to understand is that in the midst of the pressure and the situations that become so desperate and they hurt us and they feel like we are not able to survive, it takes discipline and it takes a courage to stop and to worship. And to believe for a greater victory than just pain relief. Church, if we want to be an awakening to this generation, to this area, to this province, to this nation, to the world, we have to understand what, it, what growth takes place out of our worship. It's not just something that we do that is prelim to the message. It's not something that we just kind of cultivate. It is something, it is a spiritual discipline which allows us to understand and to sit in the shadow of the Almighty. You will not understand Psalm 91 without the discipline of worship. If you only worship when your life is good, then it isn't a sacrifice of price. Next, our lives are most radiant when we play in the shadow of God's presence. We can rest and relax not because we're living in denial, but because we become convinced the harshness of reality cannot overcome the goodness of God. Think about that for a minute. The harshness of your reality is that overtaking the goodness of God. I will be your glorious hero and give you a feast. You will be satisfied with a full life and with all that I do for you. You will enjoy the fullness of my salvation, the psalmist says. Worship allows us to experience the fullness of our salvation. Jesus experienced the fullness of salvation. He experienced the full reality of sin and death being placed on his very body, and then God raised him up. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross? Where did he learn to sense that joy? Where did he learn to appreciate it? What could possibly convince a man who had endless power to surrender his life unto death, especially when he knew a song like Psalm 91, Off by Heart? A satisfying life, a true adventure, is the life that does not flee from pain or difficulty. Instead, it's a life that knows and enjoys the salvation of God through the process of death and resurrection. Your disappointments and struggles are not in the way of God moving in your life. They are becoming the way God moves through your life. 
You only learn to see it when you cultivate a heart of selfless worship. Not to twist God's arm into acting on your behalf just because you believe he's worthy. Church, many, I want to close with this, and that is that many years ago when I first started ministry, I, I went through college, got my bachelor's, went to my first church. And, um, you know, how good college is, they don't prepare you for the reality of the real thing. And I remember that there was this lady... And somehow there, it was back in the day, and I, I don't know if it still is, but when you register, when you sign in at, at the hospital, they ask you for what denomination or what religion you practice. And this one was Pentecostal. And so it came up that she was dealing with cancer, and she wanted a pastoral call. And being a newbie, the pastor sent me. What do you say to someone who is facing death and cancer? You start going through the Rolodex of, your, of things that have meant something to you, and all of a sudden, I came up to Psalm 91. Ah, this is good. I'll take this, and I'll go up and see her. I went up to her room and knocked on the door and opened up and there she was not in, pull, in a full uh, not in a, a picture of health but of weakness no hair and I began reading Psalm 91 Now you have to understand that if you begin to read Psalm 91, what Psalm 91 says and what she's experiencing are like polar opposites. I'm coming in doing my pastoral duty, reading the psalm, yet feeling as I left that room that day, feeling defeated that what I was speaking and giving was not what she was experiencing. Church, the understanding is this, is that God is there through the process for us to experience Psalm 91 but we have to walk through the sacrifice. We have to go through the difficulty. We have to understand that there is a... God is who He says He is, and He will bring about what He says He, he will do. But in the midst of our personal struggles, what we are personally dealing with today. They can come into conflict with what the Scripture says. And honestly, 
I'm amazed at sometimes how Christians sometimes are very fleeting in their faith. Because when it comes to what is said and what they're experiencing, they will flip to the experience and go, well, I don't experience what is being said in Scripture, so it must not be real. I must give up on my faith. I must walk away from God because that must be not true. There's been too many people over my some 30 years of ministry that have flipped just like that because they haven't developed a discipline of worship. They haven't walked in the midst of their pain and believed for deliverance and salvation for the ultimate goal of the truth of what's been said. You may be here today and you are in pain and you are facing difficult realities that only need a miracle. And it's so easy to just say, well, I'm not getting my miracle, therefore this must not be true. That's what the enemy wants you to do. It's like standing at the predest- on the temple and saying, cast yourself down because God's going to protect you. He's taunting you and saying, you know what? The reality and the word doesn't match. Give it up, buddy. And the fact is, is it's not about giving you pain relief. It's about building your character and knowing that God is who He says He is and He will deliver you. That even in the face of death, he can bring about resurrection. But we don't like death. We don't like the fear of death. And therefore, we vacillate. Church, your worship is to help you combat the fear of death. What if he doesn't come through? What if this should happen? What if? What if? I worship him because of who he is. He is the God of all creation. It says in his words that the suns, the rocks, will cry out. And even in death, there is victory. Church, we need to understand there is, there is pain in process. But that pain isn't there to defeat you. That pain isn't there to, to kill you. That pain is not there to take away your freedom. That pain is not going to bring you defeat. That pain is the process that allows you to develop the joy. Who for the cross endured the pain? We want to be an awakening church. 
we have to be awakened to a discipline of worship in, the, in establishing that that which has been given to Christ as he is walking towards Jerusalem is the same thing that's being offered to us. And we rest in the character of who God is in the midst of our struggles because in the end, there is victory. There, I don't know how many times I have walked by faith into certain situations thinking, oh, the end is coming. The end is here. I've walked into many different circumstances and it looked like the, it looked like the end. But God was faithful and he was more concerned about the process of developing my character than he was about delivering me from my pain. And church, he is not finished with you. Because you're facing some pain. His character is not in question because of your pain. Because in your, in your death, there will be resurrection and there will be life. Because in the midst where I walked into those situations, God turned them around and miraculously there was life. Practically, what does that mean? Church, we need to be a church of a, a, a family of worship that will develop our worship and worship Him in the midst of our pain. In the midst of our situations. And give Him the worship that He, because of who He is. And He will reign. His kingdom will be established. It will be extended. I like what James says, count it all joy when you, feel, when you face trials, temptations. Read James chapter 1. How do you count it all joy when you face difficult circumstances? It's because those dif difficult circumstances are there to give you an upgrade. so that you can be victorious in the midst of that situation. And you only get that victory when you walk through the whole thing. Not when you take pain relief for the moment. That is a God that desires to use you and I in the midst of people's pain. Because once we've gone through it, we've been given a measure of glory that we are able to share with one another. You see, not everybody's going to come 
to these four walls of this church and say, you come listen to my pastor because he's going to give you a little bit of his glory so you can handle your life. No, you know what stops people in their tracks is when the glory is on you in your situation where you are at that people will listen to what you have to say and what you have. There are world changers in this room. It's time that we cultivate that and let it out. But it takes time to say, this Lent, I'm going to worship. In the midst of my pain, I'm going to worship. In the midst of my deficit, I'm going to worship. Don't let the circumstances of life dictate your reaction for the future. Let his character build in you so you will release his glory for the future. That's what you're called to do.